Ascot, Maidenhead, Bracknell, Wokingham, Henley, Reading. The voice River Radio of the Thames Valley. Good morning, it's Turning Pages here on River Radio. We'll be discussing some great books and our favourite reads. Suggestions to help with your New Year resolutions. And our favourite books about libraries and museums. Good morning, you're listening to Heather Adams and Julian Ashton on Turning Pages. Hello and Happy New Year! Every week we aim to delight you with an eclectic mix of recommended books to enjoy, from the latest bestsellers to our favourite classics. So if you love reading or just want to make sure you know what's happening in the world of books, this is your programme. Thank you for joining us. This week we've got a packed show for you. It's the start of the new year and no doubt many of you are thinking of resolutions, so we'll be recommending some books to help you on your way. We've got a new poem by Mike Burton to get us into the swing of the new year. And we're recommending some great books about libraries and museums. And once again, we've been scouring the papers to spot interesting book news for you. Oh, Julian, we can't hear you for the minute. We must have a technical fault on the line. Try again. So, don't forget... We'd love to hear from you. So if you have any favourite authors you want to tell us about, any great book recommendations, if you run a local book club or are a local author, we'd love you to get in touch. You can contact me on heather at river.radio with any of your book news and we'd be delighted to include some of your thoughts and ideas in future shows. So let's see if we can get Julian back online. Julian, no, we still can't hear you. Disaster. Anyway, he's quickly going to try and sort that out. So let's start with a quick roundup of a few of our book stories, and then we'll go to some music and see if we can fix this technical fault. So we have been discussing over recent months, we've had an unprecedented treasure trove of the UK's literary heritage from a letter in which Jane Austen anticipates the end of a love affair to a handwritten manuscript of Emily Bronte's poems that was once believed lost, has been at risk of being lost to the public to be sold overseas. But not anymore. At last, the Huntersfield Library has been saved for the nation after a charity raised more than £15 million in just five months to acquire it. This is really exciting news because they were such treasures that uh, were about to be lost, no doubt, to America. But half the amount was donated by Sir Leonard Blavatnik and 
Another four million was from the National Heritage Memorial Fund, and the remainder was raised through donations from organisations, including the T.S. Eliot and the Foyle Foundations, with another two and a half million from museums and libraries and thousands of individual donations. And that all came to the £15 million. So well done, everybody. This is fantastic news. And in recognition of the great generosity, the collection will henceforth be known as the Black Nick Horensfield Library. And the manuscripts and books will be donated by friends of the National Libraries who masterminded the fundraising to institutions all around the world. Now let's see if we can click through to uh, Julian. And no, we still can't. So what we'll do is we'll just very quickly play a bit of music whilst we see if we can sort this out. Uh... I think we have sorted it out. So, Julian, good morning. Yeah. Uh, oh, sorry. Let me let's stop. The, <laughs> would help if we stopped the music, wouldn't it? There you are now, Julian. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so I'm now called from thrown completely. So I've got, I don't know what happened there. No, I don't know. New but, Year's Gremlins. But happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to you too. Happy right. New Year indeed. So we're just in the middle of our um, news items that we spotted in the books. And I think you're going to tell us about the Chelsea Street where Oscar Wilde I lived. am indeed, yes. Well, Oscar uh, Wilde lived in um, Tite Street in uh, Chelsea, yes. uh, where he wrote The Importance of Being Earnest. And it is now one of the most expensive streets in England and Wales, uh, where the average house prices um, are just a little under... Thirty million pounds. Wow. Yep, and it's in the Royal Borough of Kensington, Chelsea, and it runs from Tedworth Square to south of the River Thames. So, if you've got a bit of spare change, you know, down the back of the city, oh, yes. put it together and treat yourself to a house on Tight Street. That sounds good, and possibly be as successful as Oscar Wilde. Indeed. <laughs> So I'd like to highlight a great new book that's out on the moment and it seems to be getting lots of publicity and it's all about the history of women's working out. Mm, it's called right. Let's Get Physical, How Women Discovered Exercise and Reshaped the World by Danielle Friedman and it's published by Icon and it's for everyone who goes to the gym or works out 
and this is the book for you. And I know, I don't know about you, but whenever I'm out and about, I'm always astounded that it's women that you see pounding the streets, doing their running or their walking or in the gym far more than guys. Mm. But women haven't always been encouraged to exercise. Um, they thought that it would encourage strenuous uh, exercise, would encourage unwanted hair in strange Ooh. places and, and big legs. So I'm always worried about big legs myself. But anyway, so the, the book started with an article about the origins of bar workouts. And I've just started going to bar classes, which is why I'm particularly interested in this. It's fabulous exercise. It makes me want to feel as though I'm going to be a ballerina any minute. Obviously, that's far from the truth, of course. Um, but uh, Letty Burke, who was the uh, in the 60s, she started the trend of bar exercises because she couldn't get a job as a dancer. And she attracted a glittering clientele, including actresses such as Joan Collins and Britta Eklund. And the novelist Edna O'Byrne, O'Brien, sorry, Edna O'Brien wrote the prologue to her book, the Lottie Burke Book of Exercises. Obviously, this was the swinging 60s. So it was perfect timing. Women were wanting to show off their bodies and their newly launched mini skirts. And these exercises helped develop the body of a, of a dancer, which is obviously what I'm aiming for this new year. Well, um, well, well the thing is, you see, here's the difference. Whilst you're doing... Yeah. Hello? Yeah. Carry on. Whilst you're doing um, your bar exercise in the gym, men do other bar exercise. They stand <laughs> at the bar and they lift a pint in the right hand, put it down, pick a pint in exactly. the left. Exactly. That's why you've got the difference. So you don't see that many, many at your place, but they're in the other bar. <laughs> yes. You're absolutely right. Well, so the British fitness industry is now worth nearly two billion pounds a year so as you start your 22 fitness regime and I'm including you in that I'm looking at you Julian um consider yourselves to be on the shoulders of fitness giants well that's amazing well I I have been using my little rowing machine um so you know I'm I'm contributing to the two billion pounds now I've got an item here it was just uh, 38 years uh, 38 year old Clemency Burton Hill who's an accomplished uh, classical violinist and broadcaster suffered a, a significant um, brain hemorrhage and it was quite it it, it was it, it did threaten her life and she's written a book um, which is called Another Year of Wonder Classical Music for Every Day and it's been published by Headline Home and it, extraordinarily it was partly completed use completed by using just her thumb on her left hand during her recovery because that was the only um, the only hand that she had any sensation in uh, and it's absolutely a life-affirming story and she attributes her dramatic recovery just one year later uh, and she's back doing broadcasting and also doing her musical training. Now, the book is designed as an introduction to classical music and for, for those who aren't too familiar with the style. And there are many people out there that are not really aware and, and come and, and, and are interested. Yeah. Um, and but it it's it it's it, it sort of helps you with that. But also, it's a worthwhile book for for those not only those people who enjoy classical music, but you know for for um, helping children um, come to appreciate classical music as well. Yes, um, and you and you never know; it may just save your life. Yes. So I was actually reading that um, it they thought it was because of her music training when she was a child that it helped her recovery. 
from the brain hemorrhage. Right, right. Interesting. Well, funny enough, it's my, my aunt in Austria. I mean, she she suffered from a stroke. Oh, yeah. And she she did recover completely. And whilst her English is not very strong, that's what she concentrated on. And the doctor oh, so said, something yeah, different. Yeah, something different. And that's what she focused on in her recovery. Yeah. And though, and though it's not strong, but she she that's what she did. And I think that, you know, and so likewise Brilliant. with, with uh, clemency, obviously that's the training of the brain as, you know, yeah. Yeah, and it's, a, you know, it's all those neural networks, intro. isn't yes, it? Exactly. That's in different yeah, ways. Yes. Brilliant. That's, yeah. that's lovely. Thank you. Yeah. That's a good story. Yeah. So one of our listeners has sent an email in, um, Aileen Nisbet, letting me know what was named the most popular Scottish word this year. Obviously, before the new year, we were talking mm. about word of the years in, in England. So yes. according to the Scottish Book Trust, Dreek was the it was used commonly which is commonly used to describe Scottish weather is the most iconic Scots word. Now of course we all know what dreek means. Uh, it sort of means dull or gloomy or damp. So often when I'm out walking and there's a little mist and you're feeling mm. a bit wet, you're saying, Oh, it's dreek out here. <laughs> now it beat off contenders, including Scunnard which means disgusted or strong dislike, and a shugle, meaning to shake from side to side. I like that word, shugle. Yes, I think I'll nice, isn't it? just give that juice carton a shugle for me or something like that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but dreek, dreek is, 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 is quite sort of atmospheric, isn't it? Oh, it's dreek. Very yeah. atmospheric. Well, exactly. That's totally what it is. Yeah, brilliant word. Thank you for that. <laughs> Uh, and finally, um, I'd like to mention Jane, uh, sorry, I beg your pardon, Joan Didion, who died last week. And yes. She's best known for the most widely read and celebrated work, which is The Year of Magical Thinking, which was her 2005 memoir about the loss of her husband from a heart attack. And it's actually a beautiful book and explores um, the, the, uh, the madness of grief and the chaos and the senselessness of modernity. Now, probably her most famous line comes from another book of hers which she wrote which is called the white album and it says we tell ourselves stories in order to live and that's why probably books are so important to us all yes that's a fabulous uh, a fabulous sentence isn't it cheers you are listening to turning pages with who uh, heather and julian thank you for listening and it's the time of year when many people start looking towards their new year's resolutions and reviewing the past and looking forward to how they can change things in 2022 and what, in fact, the year holds in store for them. And bookstores are not short of books that will help you in that process. So whether you are a believer in starting with a fresh outlook on life in January or just interested in what books might be out there to support different aspects of your life, we've got some good recommendations for you. And to get us in the mood for New Year thinking, we'll start with a new poem by our resident poet, Mike Burton. A Reflective New Year. He sat there pondering as the clock struck for the new year. A moment's time to reflect, he thought, put aside past worries and fears. Surely this will be the time a new year filled with hope. It was not that he felt wiser, but just resilient now to cope. He knew the sun would shine again. It was that thought that made him smile. No matter what is thrown my way, he reflected to wait a while. To feel the earth beneath his feet, to breathe in the midnight air. I'm still here, he thought to himself, so get up from your chair. Stand tall and you can face the year. 
not afraid of what's to come, for this is the time to look ahead, no compromise humdrum. And so with confidence he strode out into the world he knew, just different now in little ways for him to start anew. And the new year always makes us want to start anew. So following on from Mike's inspirational poem, we're starting this section with self-help books, which are a hugely successful um, publishing venture and cover, of course, a wide range of topics. So looking at the past year, the top three best-selling books in this uh, this topic, uh, the number one is Good Vibes, Good Life by Vex King, which was published back in 2018, in December 2018, and is still the largest seller last year in this area. And the Sunday Times reviewed it as how positive thinking, self-love and overcoming fear lead to lasting happiness. And I've got to say, it's had a huge number of uh, personalities take on board the the Vex King sort of view of life. Mm, yeah, and in fact, um, it, 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 it's so successful um, in, in all its imprints that it's constantly being reprinted uh, and customers around the world are clamouring for it. Um, orders pile up and, you know, they're so eager uh, to get it. And in fact, um, Hay House, the publisher, yeah. in, can almost hardly keep up with the reprints. I mean, Gosh, it's that's just, brilliant, they, they, isn't it? they increase the number of uh, reprints each time and whoosh, that's gone and there's yeah. another reprint ordered. And gosh, it's, it's amazing. So it really is a fantastic... There's, uh, yeah, there's obviously something about it. Absolutely. Really, truly, yes. And it, 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 it really is, is, is well worth read. And so from Learning to Love Yourself, um, novelist Matt Haig has hit the bestseller list with a different approach uh, with his The Comfort Book, which is a collection of aphorisms and inspirational stories of survival against the odds, which is perfect for the lockdown life we've been living. And coming in third um, uh, in the bestseller list for self-help is Atomic Habits by James Clear, which has the subtitle, An Easy and Proven Way to Build Good Habits and Break Bad Ones. So no need to say any more about that one. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> That's obviously the book to buy. Absolutely, How- in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah. However, New Year's resolutions are not just about self-help. As I'm all in favour of getting the experts in myself, especially when it comes to diet and exercise. And there's a new book out called Intelligent Fitness by Simon Waterson, which looks fabulous. So Simon Waterson is the trainer to A-list celebrities. Um, For example, he helped Daniel Craig get into his James Bond physique. Um, But importantly, I think he started life serving in the Royal Marines. Mm. And so he's got sort of like a very military view of um, of helping people build a body, which is there's no point saying this is what you ought to do. Mm. Actually, if you're not going to do it, there's no point recommending you going for a jog every morning if you're mm. never ever going to enjoy that. So it's all about doing what works for the individual rather than necessarily what you perhaps ought to do or you think you ought to do. And so it's all about achieving best results by allowing people to motivate themselves. And that sounds... A- perfect result well it does really i mean the only trouble for me doing what works is is doing nothing at all i mean that's the problem but (laughs) But that's obviously not working though (laughs) 
<laughs> so I do. I probably do need a little bit of encouragement. <laughs> However, there is something that uh, that I can, uh, I am encouraged about, and which is well, obviously exercise is always uh, sits hand in hand with diet. Um, and I can recommend one if you're looking for um, some easy food to um, suit a diet. Um, then I can thoroughly remember uh, recommend a book called The Pinch of Nom, which is quick and easy um, recipes. And this stormed the bestseller list at the end of last year. Now I'm really pleased to say I was ahead of the curve because I bought mine um, at the very beginning of last uh, year. Right. Um, and it's a fantastic book. It's, 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 um, it, it's subtitled at the bottom. It's 100 Delicious Slimming Recipes. Now, what I think about this book, what's fantastic is um, uh, all of the recipes are what I call normal recipes. Right. Yeah. Um, so they're, they're, they're really lovely dishes that you would want to cook and, and you don't think it, it's not sort of, you know, lettuce with salt-free salt. So you, you know, don't feel deprived when you're eating the recipes. No, exactly. And the thing is, I, I must admit, there was one recipe I did um, and I've, I've, I've actually published it on my blog. Which oh, is oh, Okay www.cookingwithjewels.com and go to it and look at it if you haven't got the book and yeah. it's creamy tuscan chicken now this so that doesn't sound very slimming no, does it it doesn't and it's got but what the trick is is you use low calorie cooking spray and then you lo- use all sorts of low calorie things low calorie low calorie cream cheese now the thing is what's amazing is um, that the number of calories in that um, per serving? Yeah, per serving. This was chicken breast, and this is a beautiful creamy dish. Is two hundred and sixty-four <gasps> calories. Wow, wow! And it's a substantial meal. And then it suggests that if you're going to accompany it with steamed vegetables by portion, if you're doing eighty grams of steamed vegetables, that'll be thirty-eight ki- uh, calories. Yeah, which is nothing. It. Yeah, it, absolutely nothing. I this book is absolutely superb, and and it and, and because the thing is. It, it is a dieting book, but it isn't. I mean, the recipes, they are fantastic. I mean, so for example, you know, you've got Swedish meatballs, um, Chinese chicken with broccoli. Yeah. So, so what I say, normal meals, but they're actually extremely low in calories, the oh, way that. they've been put together. And this is by the two um, authors, Kate Allison and Kate Featherston. Oh, brilliant. That sounds great. Because I think um, cooking is not a, necessarily about dieting. It's about enjoying life, isn't it? And hmm. being with your friends. Exactly. And Oliver, uh, Jamie Oliver's book, Together, is another book that might help us achieve this with his easy, and I've got to always say, a Jamie Oliver recipe is always tasty as well. Mm. So if you're wondering whether you should make a New Year's resolution or not, then I'd like to recommend one for you if that's all right, which is Mm -hmm. why don't you start reading more? And you don't have to start with War and Peace or anything you feel you ought to read, because reading is all about fun, enjoyment and personal me time. And books have been a big winner during lockdown, because sales have been up. 8% 8% compared to pre-COVID 2019, which is great news. It's excellent news. Very good news indeed. And it does look like we've chosen some cosy reading or rather hair-raising reading as our bedrock with Richard Osman's book, The Thursday Murder Club and The Man Who uh, Died Twice, which both have sold over 3 million copies of the two books in all four. That's amazing, isn't which it? Which is phenomenal. So a nice birthday present to, to Mr. Osman. And Charles Mackey has done even better, staying in the Times top 10 for 115 weeks. Wow. Yeah, that's that's significant. 
And there is plenty to look forward to um, in the new books being published, including Sunday Times bestselling author Lucy Diamond, whose book Anything Could Happen will be published at the end of next week. And um, we'll be talking to the author on turning pages in our next programme. And books included in this section are Good Vibes, Good Life by Vex King, published by Hay House. The Comfort Book by Matt Haig, published by Canongate. Atomic Habits by James Clear, which is published by Penguin. Intelligent Fitness by Simon Waterson, published by Michael O'Mara Books. And uh, A Pinch of Non, Quick and Easy Recipes by Kay Featherston and Kate Allison, published by Bluebird. Jamie Oliver's book Together, published by Michael Joseph. Um, Charles Mackey, The Boy, The Mole, The Fox and the Horse, which is published by Ebury Press. Lucy Diamond, Anything Could Happen, published by Quercus. And Richard Osman's books, uh, The Thursday Murder Club and The Man Who Died Twice, both published by Penguin. Fantastic. I've got to say, I read the Lucy Diamond book over the holiday period. It was great fun. Oh, right. Lovely. So this week, we have chosen the libraries and museums as an excuse to hunt down some of our favourite books by authors new and old. Now, this seemed to be a topic loved by authors, no doubt as they hold repositories of knowledge and inspiration. So we'll be returning to this topic again in the future, I feel. But we're going to start with our first recommendation and I know that both Julian and I wanted to include this book because it is fantastic. Anyway, Julian won the debate. So over to you, Jules. Well, we'll, we'll take this as joint um, and what uh, the book that we wanted um, to bring to your attention, if you don't know it all uh, already, is a book called The Shadow of the Wind, which is written by a Spanish author, Carlos Ruiz Zafón, and it was published in 2001 in English. Well, in fact, in Spanish and also in English in 2001 by Weidenfeld Nicholson. And I have to say from the outset, The Shadow of the Wind is not only one of my favourite books, but I think it's has a fantastic title yeah. I mean, it really does i think it's a lovely title and it's really but, atmospheric oh it, it right really from the is word go isn't it really it is it really truly is and the novel actually is, is is two stories in one and the first story opens in barcelona in the 1940s when we're introduced to daniel simpera whose father is a bookseller uh, early one morning daniel's father takes him to a mysterious building which is almost inaccessible unless you know where it is and it's actually the cemetery of forgotten books which is a mysterious secret labyrinthine library that is the home to rare and banned books and is overseen by a rather garrulous uh, curator. Now, Daniel is sworn to secrecy about the library and is told that he should wander its corridors and passages and select a book. And in doing so, he, Daniel, will become its guardian. Now, seemingly, um, as if the library is a living entity, Daniel is drawn to one particular book, and the library is very canny that way, and we have a little bit of a reading for you. Okay. The Shadow of the Wind... Chapter One, The Cemetery of Forgotten Books Night watchmen still lingered in the misty streets when we stepped out of the front door. The lamps along the Ramblers marked out an avenue in the early morning haze as the city awoke like a watercolour slowly coming to life. When we reached Calais Arco del Teatro, we continued through its arch toward the Raval Quarter, entering a vault of blue haze. I followed my father through the narrow lane, more of a scar than a street, until the glimmer of the ramblers faded behind us. The brightness of dawn filtered down from balconies and cornices in streaks of slanting light that dissolved before touching the ground. 
At last, my father stopped in front of a large door of carved wood, blackened by time and humidity. Before as loomed what, to my eyes, seemed like the carcass of a palace, a place of echoes and shadows. Daniel, you mustn't tell anyone what you're about to see today, not even your friend Thomas, no one. A smallish man with vulturine features, framed by thick grey hair, opened the door. His impenetrable aquiline gaze rested on mine. Good morning, Isaac. This is my son Daniel, my father announced. He will be eleven soon, and one day the shop will be his. It's time he knew this place. The man called Isaac nodded and invited us in. A blue-tinted gloom obscured the sinuous contours of a marble staircase and a gallery of frescoes peopled with angels and fabulous creatures. We followed our host through a palatial corridor and arrived at a sprawling round hall where a spiralling basilica of shadows was pierced by shafts of light from a high glass dome above us. A labyrinth of passageways and crammed bookshelves rose from base to pinnacle like a beehive, woven with tunnels, steps, platforms and bridges that presaged an immense library of seemingly impossible geometry. I looked at my father, stunned. He smiled at me and winked. Welcome to the cemetery of forgotten books, Daniel. Scattered among the library's corridors and platforms, I could make out about a dozen human figures... Some of them turned to greet me from afar, and I recognised the faces of various colleagues of my father's, fellows of the second-hand booksellers' guild. To my ten-year-old eyes, they looked like a brotherhood of alchemists in furtive study. My father knelt next to me and, with his eyes fixed on mine, addressed me in the hushed voice he reserved for promises and secrets. This is a place of mystery, Daniel, a sanctuary. Every book, every volume you see here has a soul. The soul of the person who wrote it and of those who read it and lived and dreamt with it. Every time a book changes hands, every time someone runs his eyes over its pages, its spirit grows and strengthens. This place was already ancient when my father brought me here for the first time many years ago. Perhaps as old as the city itself, nobody knows for certain how long it has existed, or who created it. I will tell you what my father told me, though. When a library disappears, or a bookshop closes down, when a book is consigned to oblivion, those of us who know this place, its guardians, make sure that it gets here. In this place, books no longer remembered by anyone, books that are lost in time, live forever, waiting for the day when they will reach a new reader's hands. In the shop we buy and sell them, but in truth books have no owner. Every book you see here has been somebody's best friend. Now they only have ours, Daniel. Do you think you'll be able to keep such a secret? My gaze was lost in the immensity of the place and its sorcery of light. I nodded and my father smiled. And do you know the best thing about it, he asked? I shook my head. According to tradition, the first time someone visits this place, he must choose a book, whichever he wants, and adopt it, making sure that it will never disappear, that it will always stay alive. It's a very important promise for life, explained my father. Today it's your turn. For almost half an hour I wandered within the winding labyrinth, breathing in the smell of old paper and dust. 
I let my hand brush across the avenues of exposed spines, musing over what my choice would be. Among the titles faded by age, I could make out words in familiar languages, and others I couldn't identify. I roamed through galleries filled with hundreds, thousands of volumes. After a while, it occurred to me that between the covers of each of those books lay a boundless universe waiting to be discovered, while beyond those walls, in the outside world, people allowed life to pass by in afternoons of football and radio soaps, content to do little more than gaze at their navels. It might have been that notion, or just chance, or its more flamboyant relative, destiny, but at that precise moment I knew I had already chosen the book I was going to adopt, or that was going to adopt me. It stood out timidly on one corner of a shelf, bound in wine-coloured leather. The gold letters of its title gleamed in the light, bleeding from the dome above. I drew near and caressed them with the tips of my fingers, reading to myself. The Shadow of the Wind, Julian Carax. Brilliant. Thank you. Well, Daniel um, uh, takes the book home and he devours it from cover to cover and, um, as as was predicted, falls in love with the story and he sets out to discover who, in fact, Julian Carax was. Now, he soon discovers that Carax's life is shrouded in mystery and that he disappeared a long time ago along with all known copies of The Shadow of the Wind except for the one copy in Daniel's possession. Now, word gets out that the, there is only one copy and that uh, Daniel... Um, has got it and he starts to receive inquiries about it not least from a rare bookseller um, whose daughter Clara Daniel falls for but as far as well as the rare bookseller um, the, or rather should I say rare books seller a mysterious and badly disfigured stranger by the name of Line Coubert is also trying to get hold of the book now, aided by the splendidly named, and I think this is a fantastic name, it's Fermin Romero de Torres. Um, Only so you can roll your rows. <laughs> <laughs> who had come to work in his father's bookshop. The two of them decide they're going to delve into the mystery of Julian Carax. And, and this, is, this is the second um, story, so to speak. And, and the mystery of Julian Carax is of love and tragedy that goes right back to 1919, when Julian and his love, Penelope, disappear. Now, I'm going to leave it there because if you haven't read this novel already, you you must um, not, least for the description, you, um, for the Cemetery Forgotten Books, but also for the sur- superb way the author creates tension and mystery. Um, and to an extent, a touch of fantasy, which I think is a little bit unique because there's some fantasy elements that creep in in, in, in what is not a fantasy book, if you see what yes, I mean. Yes, yes. Yeah? Um, and I have to say, the story within the story of Julian Carax ends quite dramatically. And I have to say, even when I think about it, it still gives me shivers. Well, I hope that's not um, a spoiler alert. <laughs> no, it's not. No, because... It, 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 because uh, yeah, uh, no, because... There's a story within the story, but it's when the story within the story comes into the first story. So that's, ah, oh, oh, okay. Yeah, yes. But I've got to say, uh, even if you have read the book, read it again. Because oh, it's, yes, it's yeah, a yeah. great one, isn't it, it? It is. And I have to say, I must admit, I think that having read the others, because the, the, the second book, which is yeah. The Angel's Game, in fact, is the prequel to The Shadow of the Wind. And the third, The Prisoner of Heaven, is the sequel. Yes. However, I really do believe that The Shadow of the Wind is is the best of them. Yes. But you, you, you should read the others either side of it because, because it's, it, it's an extension, but The Shadow of the Wind is, is, is really superb. Yeah. 
Um, and then there is um, the uh, labyrinth of the, the spirits, which um, concludes what is actually um, termed the century of for- forgotten book series. Yeah. Um, now, I think also mention should be ne- uh, made to the translator of Zaphon's work, who is Lucia Graves. And I think her um, translations, I mean, I don't speak Spanish, but fr- from from the English, yeah. I think she's obviously a, a gifted translator be- to you know, draw that atmosphere. Absolutely, um, yeah. From, and in fact, translators get a bit of a, a sort of like a low billing, don't they? And well, they, they are yes. so important. Yes, it, they really do. And I and I found um, you know the same with the the translators for um, uh, uh, Isabella Allende's books, for yes. example. You know, same sort of thing with the atmosphere. Now, unfortunately, and it really is very sad. Uh, Carlos Ruiz Zafon died last year, age fifty-five. Oh, that's no age, is it? No, and it was from I, I, it was some form of um, sort of hideous cancer. Yeah. But however, he did complete uh, a final manuscript, uh, which has turned out to be his final work, which is called *The City of Mist*, which was published um, last year in twenty twenty-one. And funny enough, I wasn't even aware of this book until I came across it in my local bookshop just before Christmas, and I'm actually reading it now. Oh, fabulous! Well mm. done, local bookshop. Yeah. Great. So I've got to say that is fabulous choice. Thank you. Yeah. So I'm going to come slightly different angle. This is a new book, relative new book, and it's charming and it's called The Midnight Library. And it's about all the choices that go into a life well lived from the internationally best-selling author, Matt Haig, who we were talking about at the beginning of the programme with Mm. his book, The Comfort Book. Now, you might also have seen a film over Christmas called A Boy Called Christmas on telly. Anyway, that's another of his books that was televised and uh, was fabulous. So, uh, Midnight Library um, is based... On uh, well, first of all, why don't we listen to a little bit about Middle Library? That's probably the best thing to do. Hang on. At first, the mist was so pervasive that she could see nothing else until slowly she saw pillars appear on either side of her. She was standing on a path, some kind of colonnade. The columns were brain grey with specks of brilliant blue. The misty vapours cleared like spirits wanting to be unwatched and a shape emerged, a solid rectangular shape, the shape of a building, about the size of a church or a small supermarket. It had a stone facade, the same coloration as the pillars, with a large wooden central door and a roof which had aspirations of grandeur, with intricate details and a grand-looking clock on the front gable with black painted Roman numerals and its hands pointing to midnight. Tall, dark-arched windows, framed with stone bricks, punctuated the front wall, equidistant from each other. When she first looked, it seemed there were only four windows, but a moment later there were definitely five of them. She thought she must have miscounted. As there nothing else around, and since she had nowhere else to be, Nora stepped cautiously towards it. She looked at the digital display of her watch. Midnight, as the clock had told her. She waited for the next second to arrive, but it didn't. Even as she walked closer to the building, even as she opened the wooden door, even as she stepped inside, the display didn't change. 
either something was wrong with her watch or something was wrong with time. In the circumstances, it could have been either. What happening? She wondered. What the hell's going on? Maybe this place would hold some answers, she thought as she walked inside. The place was well lit and the floor was light stone, somewhere between light yellow and camel brown, like the colour of an old page. But the windows she'd seen on the outside weren't there on the inside. In fact, even though she'd only taken a few steps forward, she could no longer see the walls at all. Instead, there were bookshelves, aisles and aisles of shelves, reaching up to the ceiling and branching off from the broad open corridor Nora was walking down. She turned down one of the aisles and stopped to gaze in, gaze in bafflement at the seemingly endless amount of books. The books were everywhere, on shelves so thin they might as well have been invisible. The books were all green, green of multifarious shades. Some of these volumes were a murky swamp green, and some are light, bright and light chartreuse, some are bold emerald and others a verdant shade of summer lawns. And on the subject of summer lawns, Despite the fact the books looked old, the air in the library felt fresh. It had a lush, grassy, outdoors kind of smell, not the dusty scent of old tomes. The shelves really did seem to go on forever, straight and long towards a far horizon, like lines indicating one-point perspective in a school art project, broken only by the occasional corridor. She picked a corridor at random and set off, at the next turn, she took a left and became a little lost. She searched for a way out, but there was no sign of an exit. She attempted to retrace her steps towards the entrance, but it was impossible. Eventually, she had to conclude she wasn't going to find the exit. This is abnormal, she said to herself, to find some comfort in the sound of her own voice. Definitely abnormal. Nora stopped and stepped closer to some of the books. There were no titles or authors' names adorning the spines. Aside from the difference of shade, the only other variation was size. The books were of a similar height but varied in width. Some had spines two inches wide, others significantly less. One or two weren't more, much more than pamphlets. She reached to pull out one of the books, choosing a medium-sized one in a slightly drab olive colour. It looked a bit dusty and worn. Before she had pulled it clean from the shelf, she heard a voice behind her and she jumped back. Be careful, the voice said, and Nora turned around to see who was there. So somewhere out beyond the edge of the universe, there is a library that contains an infinite number of books. And that each one of the stories is the story of another reality. So one tells the story of your life as it is, along with another book for the other life you could have lived if you'd made a different choice at any point in your life. And I think we all wonder how our lives might have been. What if you'd had the chance to go to the library and see for yourselves? Would any of those lives truly be better? Mm. So Matt Haig is most famous, I suppose, for his first bestseller, which was a sort of like a novel and memoir called Reasons to Stay Alive, which was published back in 2015, which was based on his experience of living with depression and anxiety disorder, which he suffered from the age of 24. 
So Matt Haig is now a champion of mental health and all his books have a lovely message associated with them about living. And as you can imagine, Midnight Library is absolutely no different. So here we have the protagonist, Nora Seed, and she finds herself faced with the decision. She's unemployed, loveless, depressed. Her cat dies and it's the last straw. So she's a talented, aspiring Olympic swimmer turned aspiring rock star And now she aspires only to stop living. And so she finds herself in this library filled with all the books of other lives she might have lived. So confronted with the possibility of changing her life for a new one, following a different career, undoing old breakups, realising her dream of becoming a glaciologist, she of course must search within herself as she travels through the Midnight Library to to decide what is a truly fulfilling in life and what makes life worth living in the first place, which is just a charming idea. It is. And uh, two million copies of the book have been sold, and I've got to say, it's lovely. That's that's quite amazing, quite amazing. Now, uh, as we're starting off the new year, um, and I know that um, traditionally at Christmas time, um, you can have selection boxes crammed with all sorts of chocolate goodies. However, I'm going to give you a selection box of museum books. And I'm going to talk about some titles in an excellent um, series, uh, which is the Museum Crime series written by um, Jim Eldridge, and they're all set um, in Victorian England and feature Daniel Wilson, who is a former detective inspector who, at the height of his career, rose to prominence in the case of Jack the Ripper. Now, I'm going to just briefly chat about three. Um, Though retired, um, Daniel Wilson, who was admired for his intelligence and his skills as an investigator, and is often consulted when a case must be solved quickly and quietly, as in the murder, in the case of the murder of the Fitzwilliam, where there a dead body has been found dumped in a previously empty oh, sarcophagus. <laughs> yes, rather, rather, rather unfortunate for the chap. Uh, in the Egyptian rooms um, at the uh, Fitzwilliam in Cambridge, as the bodies start to accumulate, uh, David Wilson has to contend with um, an unhelpful local police force, as well as a deeply suspicious curator and archaeologist, Abigail Fenton. Now, who um, who is committing the murders and why? And is there a supernatural presence involved? Mm-hmm. Mm. In the murder at the British Museum, we find David Wilson called to investigate his second murder of 1894 after clearing up the mystery at the Fitzwilliam. Now, this time, Professor Lance Pickering, a respected academic um, who was due to give a talk to mark the opening of the museum's new exhibition, uh, The Age of King Arthur, is found brutally stabbed in a a cubicle in the museum's loo. Oh, no, that's... Awful. Yeah, a bit unfortunate. Um, and But on top of that, the cubicle has been locked from the inside. Now, David Wilson is aided by his now investigative companion, Abigail Fenton, who we met in Cambridge, and together they must try and catch the murderer as pressure is um, um, being piled on them to get results. And they have not only that problem, but they've got to tackle a persistent um, bunch of journalists as well as local vandals. So you must read to see what happens. And the third one and final one I'm going to talk about is 
um, the murder at the Ashmolean, which is fairly local to us. Um, and it's now a year on, it's now 1895. And a manager of uh, the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford is found in his office with a bullet hole between his eyes and the pistol close by. Now, It's dangerous course, stuff working in museums, isn't it? It, well, it is, it is, absolutely. Well, yes, don't work in them, just visit them. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so the local police force, uh, perhaps um, uh, unsurprisingly, decided that it was suicide. Um, however, the museum authorities uh, don't quite agree and they suspect foul play. And they call in Daniel Wilson to investigate, who, of course, um, brings along Abigail Fenton. Now, the pair's investigation, uh, a, a little bit hampered from the outset, by a special branch detective who is not only extremely secretive, but very intimidating as well. Uh, now, it's not long before rumours start to circulate that the murder has political overtones involving South Africa. Now, not only are key exhibits from the museum's collection missing, but there is also talk of a long-lost play by Shakespeare being involved as well. Now, not only uh, do Abigail and Daniel have to deal with the murder, but they have also got to deal with blackmail, jealousy and deceit. Now, this series is, is really a good series because there are quite a number of them. Uh, and, and if you like um, Victorian Britain and, yes. um, and crime stories, yes. you know, what, what could be better? Yes, sound yeah. good. They are. Now, all of the, the museum series, uh, along with Jim Eldridge's other murder series, because he's written um, uh, Murder at the Ritz and so on, are all published by Alison and Busby. That sound great. Sound yeah. really good. So I'm going to talk about another translated fiction work here. Ah, yes. um, and this time it's quite a heavy one, I've got to say. So it's not an easy pick, but it's The Name of the Rose, written by Italian philosopher, academic and novelist Umberto Eco, and translated by William Weaver. Now, for some reason, it was propelled into fictional fame in the 1980s. And, um, and I'm, not, I'm not really sure why, because it's quite a dense tone, but it is absolutely a literary phenomenon because it's a mega bestseller and it's translated linguistic boundaries. It was, it was sold all over the world, which is quite a rare publishing phenomenon because I know we were talking about The Shadow of the Wind, but we don't really read many translated books, do we? Mm, Much mm. to our shame, actually. Mm. Um, but Umberto Eco describes it as the difference between the kind of book that gives readers what they want and the kind of books that make readers realise that unconsciously they've always wanted it. So that's why we need to read The Name of the Rose, because you don't know it, but you really do want to read it by the end mm. of it. So it can be a little bit daunting. It's 592 pages long, but it's full of dazzling ideas. It's set in the year 1327 and, Fran uh, and Franciscans in a wealthy Italian abbey are suspected of heresy and br brother William of Baskerville arrives to investigate. We've got a little bit of a reading for you. The name of the rose, Prime in which the foot of the abbey is reached and William demonstrates his great acumen. It was a beautiful morning at the end of November. During the night it had snowed, but only a little, and the earth was covered with a cool blanket no more than three fingers high. In the darkness, immediately after Lord's, we heard mass in a village in the valley. Then we set off toward the mountain as the sun first appeared. 
While we toiled up the steep path that wound around the mountain, I saw the abbey. I was amazed, not by the walls that girded it on every side, similar to others to be seen in all the Christian world, but by the bulk of what I later learned was the edificium. This was an octagonal construction that from a distance seemed a tetragon, a perfect form which expresses the sturdiness and impregnability of the city of God, whose southern sides stood on the plateau of the abbey, while the northern ones seemed to grow from the steep side of the mountain a sheer drop to which they were bound. I might say that from below, at certain points, the cliff seemed to extend, reaching up toward the heavens with the rocks, same colours and materials, which at a certain point became keep and tower, works of giants who had a great familiarity with earth and sky. Three rows of windows proclaimed the triune rhythm of its elevation so that what was physically squared on the earth was spiritually triangular in the sky. As we came closer, we realised that the quadrangular form included, at each of its corners, a heptagonal tower, five sides of which were visible on the outside, four of the eight sides, then, of the greater octagon, producing four minor heptagons, which from the outside appeared as pentagons. And thus anyone can see the admirable concord of so many holy numbers, each revealing a subtle spiritual significance. So it does go into some detail, but it's well worth it. And uh, William of Baskerville arrives on a delicate mission, but the mission is suddenly overshadowed by a series of bizarre deaths. So Brother William turns detective and he collects evidence, deciphers secret symbols and coded manuscripts and he digs into the eerie labyrinth of the abbey where extraordinary things are happening under the cover of night. So it was a spectacular and popular and critical success. And The Name of the Rose is not only a narrative of a murder investigation, but it's an astonishing chronicle of life in the Middle Ages. So we're talking biblical analysis, literary theory, semiotics, but at its heart it's a detective story and it's a wonderful world created by a master. So I've got to say it's great fun. So as you can imagine it's the detective story that's been picked up by film companies who've made a film with Sean Connery as William de Baskerville and he won a BAFTA for the award and a very young Christian Slater as one of the monks who help him. So it's a clever book, but it's well worthwhile. Well, yes, I think it is. And I think the, the interesting thing about Umberto Eco um, and emphasising the academic, um, that he was an academic, and you can see from the piece of the reading with hectagons, yes. um, octagons and edificiums and so forth. Because I think, wasn't he, wasn't he responsible for the periodic table um, and Foucault's pendulum? Yes, yes, absolutely, yes, yes and, yeah. And again, <laughs> try and read those. I mean, they're, they're, I mean, it's just this. I think that what he is, he is um, perhaps an author um, equivalent of the most complicated crossword puzzle you'll ever come across. Yes, because he's just got so much in there that it, inter- it interlinked, intertwined, and and you, you can learn things, but you can also get sidetracked or um, uh, 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 sideswiped, particularly with the name of the rose. I mean, it, because the murders are convoluted and, you know, how, how they track each other. And then you've got the side story of the heresy that's going on and the big council that comes along. And it really is quite dramatic. 
and the film was extremely good. But I, I don't know if, if, if you know, there was, um, I don't know, fairly recently, probably in the last four or five years, there was, I think it was on the BBC, yeah. um, a, a, a BBC um, serial. of. of uh, oh, OK, yeah, what's that? Which is, yes, extreme, well worth. And that was a little bit, it was a little bit more expanded because it was actually in, 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 in weekly installments, which, which made it a lot easier um, you know, than having the full blast of the film at you. So, yes, yes. yes. Yeah, so yeah. Umberto Eco described it as if you sort of have a big club sandwich with lots of different <laughs> layers. So you sort of have right. the lettuce and the chicken and the mayonnaise and the tomato and the ham and all that sort of thing. Yeah. And that when you have to televise it, you can only pick, you can only have a chicken sandwich yeah. or a, <laughs> yes. possibly a chicken and yes. lettuce sandwich, but yes. you can't have, actually have the full Monty. No. And he says that, that a book allows you that sort of, the ability to have all those fabulous layers yes yes um, exactly that's, that's a very good description yes, I think. really good exactly. description. so he's, yeah. he is a fabulous author and he sadly now died um mm. but um again william weaver the translator mm. it was saying there's a there's an article in the um in the press about his son was talking about how difficult it was for William Weaver to translate it because you'd pick one of the words that Umberto Eco has chosen and there'd be like 50 choices you know right Ah, okay. So what, what he chose in Italian, then there was a sort of yes. the variations on, right. Yeah. So if you ever, yeah, I don't know, if you ever write an essay and you try and you've used the same word twice and so yeah. you, you go on to the store and say, what, what could I use instead of? And yeah. then there's all these choices, but they're all subtly different. Yes. And yes. so it's really amazing to decide which is the right one that is meant because you possibly don't know how, how the rest of the story is going to develop. So you possibly, I need to have to sort of keep going back and retranslating as it were. Yes, indeed. Well, well maybe that might should be a subject of one of our, our future programmes is actually to, to um, praise and highlight translators, because as you said before, they are um, unsung heroes and heroines of, of, of the literary world. Yeah. You know, and they don't get their true prominence. No, and it... Uh, which, yeah, which is which is a shame. Yeah, it's, absolutely. It's shame. And it's sort of going back to that cemetery of forgotten books. Yes. Because the whole point is there are so many books out there. Exactly. And yes. it's so easy to mm. have one slipped through. Mm. So mm. I was reading, so for Christmas, I, so thank you, Julian, for recommending Dr. Sin books. Oh, so right, for good. Christmas, <laughs> I got a Dr. Sin book, which I'm really looking forward to. I've got one, the uh, original 1950s. Oh, super. 50s, is it 1950s? No. Uh, no, no, they, they, um, well, the very last one came out later, but the one you, you got probably was, um, still might be in the 30s. Ah, great, might... yes. Yeah, so yeah. I've got that, so I got that, and I also got um, a copy of uh, G.K. Chesterton's Club of Queer Trades, ah. which I've got to say, such an, it's such an easy read. It's sort of like a series of short stories. Mm-hmm. And absolutely fabulous so i've had a great time being recommended books by ourselves i <laughs> go <laughs> yes. oh yeah i really like to read that yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um well i'm just going to quickly mention go back to um oh, yes. uh, the one book the city of the mist by um uh, carlos ruiz zafon oh yeah because well it, it, it's the actually, one you're it's reading much, at the moment i am reading at yeah. the moment it, it, and it's actually a collection there's there's shorter stories in chapters yeah but the, the, what i want to say because in 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 the reading um 
um, you, you, where uh, Daniel's father says that uh, nobody knows how old the library is. Yes. Who designed it? Well, I can tell you, if you buy The City of the Mist, one of the stories in there will actually tell you the history of the library. Fantastic. And if I can quickly remember before we run out of time. Yes, and very fact, quickly. It is, um, it's Rose of Fire. And that's the story in there. And that will tell you Brilliant. the history of the library, uh, the labyrinth and who designed it and how it came into being. And it has a great element of mystery. OK, that is fantastic. That sounds really good. So other books we've been recommending today are Another Year of Wonder, Classical Music for Every Day, published by Headline. Oscar Wilde, who wrote The Importance of Being Earnest. Let's Get Physical, How Women Discovered Exercise and Reshaped the World by Danielle Friedman, published by Icon. Healthy at Last by Eric Adams, published by Bluebird. Joan Didion, The Year of Magical Thinking, published by Harper Perennial, And The White Album, published by Fourth Estate. The Shadow of the Wind by Carlos Ruiz Zafon, published by Weidenfeld Nicholson. Um... And Umberto Echo, Name of the Rose, published by Vintage Classics. So we look forward to you joining us next Wednesday between 11 and 12 on River Radio. Next week, we'll have Sunday Times bestselling author Lucy Diamond, who will be talking about her latest book, Anything Could Happen. And Tilly Brogan will also be joining us to talk about her latest 